can I just say it's lovely to share this service with Annabelle and to have this band led by Anna. When I went away for two days in the middle of the week, we had no musicians at all for Sunday. And uh, it's great that Trevor stepped up this morning and Anna has gathered this band. So I'm so uh, pleased and thankful for them. Right, uh, if we can have my first slide up. That's great. If you've got the Bibles handy, it would be quite good to follow it. I'm going to flit around chapter 1 and chapter 2, but not in too much detail. Okay, last week, if you were here, uh, Chris said in his whistle-stop tour of the Bible in six acts, remember he took us through the whole Bible in six acts last Sunday night, he said it's made up of 66 books, it's true, and he said, just throw away comment, they're all different genres of scripture, of literature. In other words, he was saying you've got law, you've got history, You've got wisdom, poetry, you've got gospels, letters or epistles, you've got prophecy, and this thing called dramatic apocalyptic literature, which is about life with God, both in history and beyond history. And because they're all different types of literature, you must handle them in the appropriate way for each type. So when handling scripture, you always need to know what you're dealing with in order to handle its message across the generations. And tonight, we're looking at the opening chapters of Genesis to see what they tell us about being human before different preachers on each of the weeks um, look at real characters. Real characters throughout the Bible. Now, I'm really thankful to Chris because he put this sermon series uh, together, then booked leave and bogged off and left me to do Adam and Eve. So, our sermon series is... Move me on if it's not working. There you go. Our sermon series is called Guys and Gals of the Bible. He chose that as well. Uh, Flesh and blood people who speak with raw and real experience from past millennia to bring awesome wisdom to the third millennia after Jesus had walked and lived on the earth. We may be reading and hearing about them. But it's also true that they, these characters we're going to look at in the weeks to come, will read us. And they will mirror back to us simply what it is to be a human being living in God's world. And this literature in the early chapters of Genesis is about prehistory. I tried to think how to describe what this literature is. What are these opening chapters? These are about the most contested verses of scripture. Christians have fallen out about these chapters and how to handle them, how to interpret them, whether to take them literally, figuratively and all the rest of it, forever. And uh, they missed the boat that really it's a theological picture in these opening chapters, right through probably to chapter 11, of what it means to be human within God's creation. It's all true and divinely inspired But we're not to treat these early chapters of Genesis as a simple, straightforward history. They're a theological history. They're giving us insight into the nature of God and the nature of humanity. Later chapters go on to tell us of the early history of key people in God's dealings and his relationships with Israel. And of the... Go for it, next one if you can. I think I'm going to rely on you there. Okay, right at the start in Genesis 1, some of us worry about how it's all structured, what it all means and all that. This chapter is about God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You can only make sense of Genesis 1 when you worry about God 
rather than what he did. That's the whole significance of the whole chapter. Genesis 1 would therefore have burst upon a pagan world with its pantheon of creation, sun gods, moon gods, earth gods and stars, and said starkly, whoa, wait, you've got it all wrong. You think these bits of creation are things to fall down and worship. Let me instead introduce you to the great creator of God, the great maker of heaven and earth, the God who would ultimately reveal himself as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator himself. Worship him, not the things that he has made. And the ordering of life in the cosmos is beautifully portrayed, but chapter 1 says God is at the heart of it all. 35 times, just to give you a clue, God is mentioned in this opening chapter. So, reader, get the hint. This is all about God himself and only then about what he has made. And this is the turn of the focus. We can have my next slide in case it's... Yep, good. So here's another angle. Right toward the end of chapter 1, it starts to play with our heads. And this is what it says. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. This means that humanity, which in Hebrew, funny enough, is the word Adam, whilst related to all creation, has a distinctive quality that sets us apart. Creation is itself wonderful. But right here, we discover that humanity has a special quality in relation to God. The image of God means that we are sufficiently like God that we can have a relationship with him, because his spirit can connect and indwell our spirit. The image of God idea isn't saying that God is male and female, but it is clear that in being able to relate to God, we are male and female together, which is vital to our rounded way of relating to God. And this makes it clear that male and female are equally important and precious to God, our creator. Now, if we'd have understood that down the millennia, the Christian church and human societies would have saved themselves such angst and so many women from abuse and denigration. To be made in the image of God, it's there in that verse, is to be male and female together. Both genders together enable us to relate to the richness of God's character. And then Genesis chapter 2, on the other hand, having talked all about the creator and now featured man, now focuses upon humanity. So they didn't write the first chapter and then think, oh, I missed something out there, I'll write another one. Chapter 2's got a different emphasis. So let's see if we can get that going. There you go then. Adam and Eve are a theological picture of what it means to be human. I said that earlier. 
If you look at the text carefully, the first time Adam is used as the man's name comes in chapter 3 and verse 17. And this couple, I want to suggest, are a mirror onto our own lives and the lives of all who have lived down the ages. What they tell us about being human is true for all humanity. And we see that mirrored out and played out in the characters of the Bible, Old and New Testament. So what does this kind of God's picture of being human really look like? I want to offer you four brief points. I know some of you are really enjoying that picture, so we'll go back. Okay then. Four key points I want to talk about. Humanity in this chapter is about the gift of life. The gift of the world. The gift of work. And the gift of relationships and sex. Or to be more precise, sexuality. And the thing is, when you look at the fallenness of humanity, it is that we take these gifts, and perhaps a few others beside, and we misuse the gift. Just think about that. So often, we take the gifts of God and we misuse them in a way that seriously mars our relationship with God. So I want to start then with a general point on the gift of life we're on. Great. On a BBC Radio 4 programme, Any Questions, a panel of experts were asked how they viewed getting old. Now, why I can switch off, completely irrelevant to you at this point, or is it? One panellist, to much laughter and applause, said that as he got older, he wanted to become very objectionable and grumpy. A few of us have signed up for that one. John Habgood, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, on the same programme, took a different line. He said that growing old was an important, although difficult, experience, as it provided a time to recognise that life is a gift from God and not a right. Early in life, a good memory and the, the ability to run up and down stairs is something that most of you, and me less so, take for granted. As we get older, said Habgood, such things are less taken for granted. Indeed, he says, as you get older, it becomes a time when you hand back to God those gifts and abilities that you will not need in eternity. That is a beautiful picture of something of the psychology and feel of what it is to become old and to move on and recognise our mortality. And what a prophetic word that is to young and old in a culture which sees everything in life as a right rather than a gift. Instead of thankfulness, we live in a culture which makes demands. We focus on what we deserve and despair when it isn't available to us. So then with Adam and Eve, we see that for humanity now and in the future, life is a gift from God, from God the creator and the provider. So Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. The biblical account of creation makes it entirely clear that physically mankind, humankind, is derived from the same material as the earth. That may not come as any surprise to us, uh, but it means that the findings of modern physics and chemistry that our bodies consist of the same stuff 
as the cosmos, and that that's entirely consistent with the message of the Bible. But this verse 7 says something more. It's not trying to play up an ancient scientific script. It's trying to teach us theology. God blowing life into our nostrils is a picture of intimacy and relationship between God and humanity. And it's also a picture of life as a gift. And as such, it invites us to treasure the gift, the gift of life, not just for ourselves, but for others as well. We are called to share God's creation with others. And the gift of life means we do not hoard to ourselves, but must share life in all its experiences with others. In the grief of those who've lost a loved one. Because even though we hand over life, it remains painful for those who are left behind. We must share in the sense of loss for those designed to procreate. We do not have the opportunity or the means to procreate, to bear children. And for whom life's gift is blighted by sickness, pain or whatever mental grief afflicts them. When the gift of life seems so fragile, we can all be tempted to give up on God, to be reduced to resentment and anger. And then, perhaps seeing life as a gift means we come to recognise that a life with God is all too important, vitally important. I'm not sure which, which book it is, but this guy talks about pain. He doesn't talk about pain as a good thing. But he says pain and sorrow sometimes point to our human vulnerability in a way that directs us toward God. And some of us remain deaf. So as you embrace the gift of life, I want to ask you this. Have you as yet got a relationship with a God who gave you life in the first place? It is so possible to go through life. I encountered it in a man grieving the other week. To go through life and never face the need for the fact that we are mortal. And we need to be in relationship to our creator. Beyond chapter 2 verse 7, let's have a look at verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed... The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This gift of life is placed in a context of beauty and fruitfulness. Eden is simply a representation of God's gift to us, of the world, the cosmos, the riches of creation. And we need to learn how to steward that as a distinctive part of being human upon this particular planet. Eden represents also a place for moral growth and challenge. Humanity, remember Adam, which means not just man, but man and woman, Adam and Eve, could have the fruit from the tree of life, which is a picture of life with God. But it says in this passage, there was another tree, the tree of good and evil, and that it was forbidden. It represents a life lived foolishly and without God. 
So humanity, just like Adam and Eve, is called to live with what the Bible calls wisdom. True wisdom, it says, comes from God. And to live without such wisdom is our downfall. Adam and Eve soon make the mistake in chapter 3, we're not looking at that, but as humanity had fallen into the same trap ever since. They basically said to God, look, I know you've said this, but we know better than you. Genesis 2 and 3 show us that we live in a world of moral choices, from the way we treat our friends and neighbours, how we care for animal species, all the way to our vast power in shaping the world through science and technology. And what does this passage say? What's that tree of good and evil? It's the gift of wisdom. It's the stuff that you can't learn when you're doing a PhD. But you can only learn when you're bowed before God Almighty. And you understand that he holds the key to life lived well. Wisdom is more than knowledge, and it resides with the God who made us and all creation. And God isn't simply the judge who shows us how we mess up his world. In this chapter, we discover that he's the helper, ready to work with us in the stewardship of creation. Boy, do we all need wisdom. But there's another gift. With the gift of Eden, Eden comes the gift of work. Now, relax. Work and creativity doesn't necessarily mean paid employment. Um, some of us love our work, and some of us can't wait to leave it behind. It's, it's a much richer idea than simply paid employment. But with the gift of Eden comes the gift of work, or perhaps more helpfully, creativity. Now, if you're anything like me, you want the kind of garden that basically you just stick the deck chair out there and enjoy it. It looks brilliant all the time. I saw somebody who just moved into a brand new house. They got a tiny little patch at the back and they said, we're getting some of that plastic turf for that. It's not worth buying a lawnmower. Well, there you go. So we don't want to work. But what this chapter is saying, to be fully human, God knows better. Even if our job is not our delight, to be human is to be creative. And not to be creative is a dehumanising experience. Adam and Eve remind us that human beings are provided with responsible work by God himself. He put that instinct in us. God puts them in the garden in verse 8, only to give them the task of working and caring for it in verse 15, if you're following the text. Now, this is perhaps the section on which we have come to describe APC as whole life discipleship. What we do every day matters to God. Whether you're cramming for an exam tomorrow, whether you're struggling to nurse someone at home, whether you're getting your head round a new job or a new challenge or even frustrating employment. Whole life discipleship is living for God tomorrow and not for an hour on Sunday. If work really involves cooperating with God, then it can't be seen as a necessary evil to gain a bigger house or a bigger car. Work isn't second rate to Christian ministry. You're all right, but I've got the proper job. All creativity matters to God. Accepting 
what God asks us to do is really vital. And though many jobs are badly paid and badly structured in ways which, ways which create misery and injustice, still the principle of work as a gift stands. So do you see what's going on here? All these gifts go wrong when they're mashed up or wasted or abused. Caring for the resources of the world, using the resources creatively in science and technology, managing the resources in finance as an accountant at the back, and serving the needs of others are all Christian ministries. We all go through bad times at work, school or college, but that doesn't negate this idea of work as a gift of God to humanity. It simply reminds us that society needs to give and try to give to people work that involves creativity and responsibility. And if you've ever worked with a long time unemployed, you know how broken they can so easily feel and become. So when we say they're like that because they don't want to find work, trust me, we've never experienced what they've been dragged down to do. So here's to the last of my, import, of my points. And if you want to know anything about this section, don't ask me, just go and see YF. Because they're doing the Romance Academy, they're doing all relationships and sex, they've got all the answers, I'm just going to have a little go at seeing what I can find to say. So from this couple, embedded in these early chapters of Genesis, we see that God gave to humanity the gifts of relationships and sexuality. In chapter 2, verse 18, we read that God saw it was not good for man, remember Adam, to be alone. Now remember please that in this couple we're reading a theological story. Male and female speak to us of the importance of diversity, companionship and fellowship. The word helper does not mean that the woman is weaker and subject to the man but rather that humanity, male and female together, are completed in cooperation. Elsewhere in scripture, God is described as our helper. He's not inferior. Animals, according to this account, were created before humans. So if man's more important than a woman, the animals are more important than us. Do you see some of the nonsense that's been put out there? I want to suggest that the most careful reading of scripture without the distorted perspectives of culture and history mean that male and female are to be celebrated together. They are not identical, but they are equal. And this should be reflected in how they live and are helped to live in God's world. They are both gifted to humanity by God for relationship. Now, this is not only true in marriage. Single men uh, and women, whether single by choice, circumstance or calling, are fully part of human community. That's what it's saying here. It's not just a passage about marriage. They need friendships, both male and female, outside the marriage relationship. Instead of the church being a place where singles start to feel invisible or second rate. Church life and its relationship should be so inclusive of single people of every age, the young, the middle-aged and the old, 
But even if the desire to be married has not been met, they experience such a love in our midst that they feel rich toward God and toward life. Now I want to say that I think those words are a profound challenge to how we relate together in our Christian communities. You will remember that I have been divorced. And one of the consequences of that is, as a man who'd been married for 15 years, all of a sudden I knew what it was to be a single parent. Normally when you read the magazines, single parents are women. I was a bloke. And it was a really intriguing experience to be a single man after having known married life for a long time. Inasmuch as we all fall so short, then the whole church should apologise to those who are, for whatever reason, not married, as to how we have failed to include them. Now, if time allowed, YF, I would go on now to give a talk about sex and marriage, but you've had all that elsewhere, so I'm not going to do it. But what's clear is that in Scripture... Sex is portrayed as a gift. Now, if I was going to see someone who's one of the great sort of fathers of the church about prayer, I'd go to a man called Oregon, one of the early church family, uh, fathers. If I wanted to know about sex, Oregon would be the last guy I'd go and talk to. He had such a negative and fear-inducing view of sex, he's responsible for a total negation of this beautiful gift from God. But like all gifts, and all four of these gifts, in this story of humanity, we see that when the gifts are abused, things go wrong. Genesis is, the message in Genesis is that all of us are sexual beings. But the context for full sexual expression is marriage. From Adam and Eve, we simply discover that God has gifted us with relationships, sex, work, the world, and life itself. He's also provided us with the gift of scripture to reveal his wisdom on how best to enjoy these gifts. Now, if you're anything like me, you lack wisdom. You've blown it. You know what it is to take the gifts of God and get them wrong. And in this series, I hope that what will happen is we'll look at characters who lived such a long time ago and we think, they've got nothing to say to us. And we'll see ourselves mirrored in their experience in Scripture. And we'll discover something, what it is, to live a fully human life. And we shall ask God to give us wisdom to do it well. Let's be still for a moment.